Welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show, where dreams come true and nightmares are reality. And uh, certainly that has been the case this year as the Ducks continue on with their marvelous dream season and the hits keep coming and they don't stop coming as uh, the, the infamous band Smash Mouth once sang. And uh, so, hey, welcome to the Dog and Duck Show. Before we get into Dog and Duck News, Mark, how are you doing, my friend? You know, I'm doing great, Warren. I'm surprised to hear you so downcast uh, this evening because I would think you've got a little bit of renewed hope for the future based on, you know, some some announcements this week in uh, in Huskyville. So I'm 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 curious if your if your mood improves over the course of the next hour. Yeah, of course. So, you know, uh, Mark, you're talking about the, the news that Jimmy like, yes, has been officially relieved of his duties as the head coach of the Washington uh, football Huskies. And um, in less than two years, he went from being perhaps the hottest uh, up and coming head coach candidate to now being out and uh, on the street. Now, I have no doubt that he'll land in a great spot and has a bright future in front of him. But as for the Huskies, it leaves us in a perilous position with uh, a, a roster that, you know, in, in previous generations, you would say, okay, recruiting's going to tank, but we're going to be okay. And we'll, we'll pull this thing out of the, the ground. But with the advent of the transfer portal, really there's no way to tell whether or not uh, the long-term ramifications of, of this season, uh, what kind of a, what kind of an impact that's going to have. But Hey, before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the weekend games. So for the, the Washington Huskies, they went into their game against Arizona state with a new head coach, Bob Gregory serving as the interim head coach and a new offensive coordinator, Junior Adams, who uh, stepped in from his wide receiver position coach to take over the play calling for the dogs. And in the first quarter, it looked like it was paying off. There was creativity, there was ball movement. Uh, there seemed to be a lot of energy on the offensive and the defensive side of the ball. And UW jumped out to a 14-0 lead against the Sunday Devils and uh, managed to uh, carry that lead. They were up uh, 17 to seven at halftime, 24 to 14 going into the fourth quarter. Uh, but the same old problems reared their ugly heads in the second half. And uh, it, 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 in this case, it was Dylan Morris's inability to move the ball and score points for an extended period of time. And then the Huskies inability to be able to stop the running game. And uh, it's, you know, at this point, it's no surprise when a Pac-12 running back or really any running back has a career game <laughs> against the Huskies. This time it was Rashad White who ran for 184 yards in addition to, or, or I guess with an additional 53 yards receiving on top of that in this game. And uh, Jaden Daniels just 
sliced and diced throughout the second half. And uh, it was too much for the dogs to withstand. Um, and so they they somehow uh, managed to, to coog it and to pull out a loss at the end. Uh, Dylan Morris throwing a pick six uh, near the end of the game with one minute left to go within a scores chance of winning the game. And then out of all things, <laughs> they get the ball back on an onside kick with one with one second left of the game. And they've got, a, they've got about 40 something yards to go. And this, if this doesn't encapsulate this season, then I don't know what, what does, but in an obvious Hail Mary scenario, Dylan Morris throws the ball seven yards and the game is done. <laughs> I mean, it's just mind bending uh, how this team has continued to, to lose in the same way over and over and over again. So before we talk about some of the other ramifications of Husky football, M Mark, give us a little bit of an update on what happened with the Ducks this past weekend. I, I have to say, I, I didn't realize that that's how the game actually ended. You know, I not being a Husky fan, I was kind of taking a, uh, a sick fascination in, in watching the demise of the Huskies, but, uh, but I was also flipping back and forth, you know, between three other games. And so as soon as that pick six happened, I just kind of moved off the channel. I didn't realize that they had a chance for a Hail Mary that then turned into a seven yard pass. I mean, that just, that's perfect. Uh, they scored, they scored a touchdown to get back within five points. Uh, and then they did an onside kick with and had, and recovered it with one second left, you know? So obviously it's just, to send everybody to the end zone and chuck it and hope one of your guys can out jump the other. But instead they pass it seven yards and immediately tackled and the game is over. Well, and that's especially surprising to me that, uh, cause they scored with three seconds left. So there was a game this weekend with Miami and Florida state where Miami tried to spike the ball with three, with two seconds left. And the referee ruled on the field. He said, you cannot spike a ball with less than three seconds left. The game is over. And everybody was kind of looking around going, since when is that a rule? Like, I didn't know that was a rule. I've never heard that referenced. And so, so in this game, the Huskies were able to recover an onside kick in two seconds. In two seconds. Yeah. You would think spiking a ball could be done quicker than recovering an onside kick, but, uh, you know, who knows? Yeah, when uh, does the clock start? Does the clock start at the kick or at the touch of the ball? Uh, so I think they changed that a while back to now it starts when a player touches the ball, because I, I want to say there was a game, this is totally a tangent, but it's a fun tangent. I want to say there was a game where Brett Bielema, when he was coaching Wisconsin, ran out the clock by like, he kept having his kicker kick the ball out of bounds and getting a penalty and then kicking the ball out of bounds again. And they just utilized the last few seconds of the game by not kicking the ball in bounds mm -hmm. and so they changed the rule to where the clock doesn't start until the receiving team touches the ball that's a totally random yeah. footnote but um one other note and we'll circle back to this uh a little bit later is that uh the huskies did give uh freshman five-star quarterback sam heward uh three drives with yes with the the starting with the, the quarterback position the first two drives 
were in the first half and both drives were uh, with very bad field position inside the 10 yard line and uh, both resulted in in quick uh, quick three and outs uh, and and punting the ball away. Uh, not much of an opportunity for for Sam Heward to really make much of an impact. In the third quarter, he also got a drive, which was which culminated in I believe seven or eight handoffs yes, and a touchdown, right. Right. but no passes. So. So Sam Heward finished the game three for five for 18 yards, something like that. And, uh, and really kind of left you wondering, you know, what can we, what can we take away from Sam Heward based on the limited number and the position that we saw him put in. So just another one of those those handoffs was incredible. Like, (laughs) yeah, you know, I mean, you just you're just kind of wondering like what what is the coaching staff doing here like if you're going to you know and we'll we'll circle back on this but if you're going to burn the red shirt then yeah. why put him in in those particular instances and use him the way that you did it, it's a mystery um i have to say that i so i saw that drive of the ham sam heward handing off every every play and then arizona state had a similar drive late where Jaden Daniels just handed off every play. And, th- and this was critical to me, Warren, because I'm watching and texting a fellow Duck fan. And all we were concerned about was that Arizona State would find a way to win the game and that Jaden Daniels would pass for less than 100 yards. That's, that's what our focus was on. And yeah. so Jaden Daniels started this drive. He was at 90 yards. And so we're like, uh, we're texting back and forth. Like, I don't know how he's going to do this. Like, you know, it's, I mean, they've got to drive like 65 yards yeah. and he's, he can't throw the ball more than once maybe, you know? Yeah. And sure enough, it was like eight running plays right down the field. And that's yeah. how the Sun Devils scored. And so we were celebrating in our, in our. T- So we were texting back and forth, celebrating this this you know weird streak now that the Huskies have of losing games while giving up less than a hundred passing yards, which doesn't seem right. possible. And yet, what they've done it five times this year. So uh, anyway, just to give you a window into into how I watch uh, the Huskies at this point in the season. Well, you know, I mean, it's it's totally normal in a in a regular football game for a, a team to pass for 300 yards and run for a hundred, but to have a team pass for less than a hundred yards and run for over 300 in multiple games in a season yeah. is the sign of some kind of deep systemic problem that is really the reason why Jimmy Lake has been like, Oh, I mean, I think, yeah. you know, if, if it were purely the offense, that was the problem, then I don't think Jimmy would have been let go, but when you pair this bizarre, you know, culmination of bad offense and like historically bad running defense, it's, it it was a, you know, a a foregone conclusion, 
But, um, you know, at, at the end of our last episode where we had, uh, you know, guest Mike Martin on, yeah. we, we wrapped up as we always do with, with me saying go dogs, you saying go ducks. And then Mike kind of chirped in and said, go Cougs. <laughs> and it didn't really dawn on me until after the show was over that, uh, that, that the ducks were playing the Cougs this weekend. So give us a little bit of a breakdown on, uh, how the how the Cougars fared against the the, the nine and one Ducks? Yeah, I, I knew exactly what he was referring to when he said that. But uh, yeah, weird game. Uh, I mean the the headlines is the Ducks improved to nine and one. They they won thirty eight to twenty four. It wasn't really that close. The uh, Cougars scored with about ten seconds left in regulation. So it was. I mean, the Ducks were comfortably ahead uh, late in the fourth quarter, which is unusual for this Duck team to be that far ahead against a decent team. Uh, but it was just kind of one of those weird games. Uh, the, I think on the second play of the game, the Cougars completed like a 77-yard pass down the field, which which never happens against this Oregon defense. I mean, that is probably their biggest strength is that they don't give up deep passes. They get burned for a 70-some-yard pass, that gets the Cougars down, you know, just outside the goal line. And then on the next play, Jaden Delora is trying to run the ball into the end zone and he fumbles through the end zone and out of bounds. So mm. it's a touchback to Oregon. The Cougars have this great start to the game and are unable to capitalize it at all. And honestly, that felt like a huge turning point. Like if the Cougars score there and take a seven to nothing lead, it feels like the whole rest of the game is different. Um, but Oregon was kind of able to find themselves and similar to their win over Washington the week before they just ran the heck out of the ball, 300 rushing yards as a team for the second week in a row, Anthony Brown ran for a career high, 123 yards. The freshman Byron Cardwell came in late and had a couple nice touchdown runs. He ran for almost hundred yards, was named Pac-12 freshman of the week. Travis Dye was his normal self. He, he scored a couple times as well, helped out your fantasy team. So uh, just a dominant performance running the ball, I think similar to how I felt after they did that against the Huskies. I, I don't know what that really means going forward. I don't think uh, the Cougars are a whole lot better against the run than the Huskies are. We kind of knew that that would be an area where the Ducks would have some strength. So all of that now, you know, um, gets put on display this next week where Oregon has, you know, one of their biggest games of the season going to Utah, who's ranked 23rd in the latest CFP poll. And that's going to be just a huge, huge game for the Ducks and any playoff hopes that they might have. Yeah. So let's, let's look ahead of this Utah game. Cause I mean, to me, I think the big question that we, we, we talked about briefly last week is, can this Oregon team beat Utah twice, once uh, on the road at, in Utah, a second time uh, in a neutral site in what is likely going to be the Pac-12 championship game? Um, what What is it going to take for this Oregon team to, to be able to do that? And how confident are you that they're going to be able to, to, to pull that beat off against, uh, you know, Kyle Whittingham, who certainly is one of the, the, the top coaches in the Pac-12. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge challenge. I think uh, if I'm trying to find a reason to feel good about Oregon's chances, I would say this is 
one, they've, they've seemingly played their best in their biggest games. Um, the Ohio state game was on the road. The UCLA game was on the road and, you know, and with college game day in attendance, obviously their win over the Huskies was on the road, which was a rivalry game. Um, so they've, they've gone on the road this year for some big games. So I don't think they're going to be kind of overwhelmed by the environment of it. I think also, uh, Vegas has made Utah a favored by a field goal in this game, which I actually think mm. makes sense. Uh, I think if I were a betting person, I'd, I'd consider, you know, Utah the favorite as well, uh, just because they're playing at home. And these teams are mirror images statistically in, in almost every category. Uh, but I think Oregon coming in as an underdog, I think can only help them. Mario Cristobal is a really, really good motivator. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that absolutely helped them against Ohio State. I think they came into that game with a chip on their shoulder and they played like it from the opening snap. And so um, this is an Oregon team that has kind of been a little lethargic at times against some of the lesser opponents on their schedule. Obviously the Stanford loss, but even wins over Cal or Arizona where they just didn't look fully engaged. So anything that kind of gives this team an edge, you know, uh, from the get-go anything that kind of um gives them that extra layer of intensity i think can only help them so i'm i'm assuming that oregon is going to show up and play well you know i don't know that that will necessarily result in a win but i don't think it's going to be a game where i'm pulling my hair out because they just didn't seem to you know look engaged the whole time i think i think they're going to show up and i think they're going to play really well and i think they're going to have a good game plan offensively and defensively, but but Utah has been as hot as any team in the conference um, for the last two months, really. And so, uh, I think it's I think it's going to be a great game. It's it's probably the best game that we've had in the Pac-12 season thus far. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that this is going to be the, these two teams have you know proven themselves to be the heavyweights of of the conference this year. Uh, they they both really have a very similar identity they've they've built themselves around a very strong running uh, attack and a real commitment to stopping the run and um you know probably arguably the the two best defensive players uh, in the pac-12 this year in Kayvon Thibodeau and uh linebacker for Utah Devin Lloyd um so it, it I think this does really match up well uh, for both teams. And it'll be a lot of fun to see uh, who comes out on top, not only in this game, but uh, most likely in a couple weeks again in the Pac-12 championship. So uh, whichever team, the, the, the interesting thing I think is that uh, really Utah in many ways has nothing to lose. They're not, they're not playing to get into the college football playoffs uh they're they seem most assuredly uh in the driver's seat to win the pac-12 south with or without uh, you know beating oregon this saturday so you know i think they're going to end up having a lot more uh you know just pressure taken off of them but then on the other side you do see that 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 does give the the oregon ducks an increased sense of urgency. Like, you yeah. know, if we want, if we want to get to the college football playoffs, we have to take that March madness 
tournament approach like we talked about last week where every game is a playoff game. And so it really does come down to how are these guys going to respond to that kind of pressure? Are they going to come into that saying we thrive on this kind of pressure? We were built for this or will eventually they'll they'll you know crumble under it and find it you know too hard to 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 keep that level of intensity up game in and game out yeah that's absolutely true and um i i think the other storyline here to watch on this game warren is uh and this this is a storyline that makes me a little bit nervous and that is it is the matchup of brothers obviously noah sewell linebacker for oregon and his older brother Nephi Sewell is a great linebacker for Utah. You mentioned Devin Lloyd, who's one of the best linebackers in the country. Well, Nephi Sewell is is right there with him in terms of, you know, they, they are a dynamic duo together. He's actually the oldest of the Sewell brothers. So he's older than Panay Sewell, who already left Oregon for the NFL. And he's, and he's older than Noah Sewell, who's like a second year freshman, I guess. Uh, but Nephi Sewell started his career at Nevada, then transferred, uh, back to Utah, which is closer to home. Uh, he is, I don't think he's ever beaten Oregon mm-hmm. in his first year at Utah. They played Oregon in the PAC 12 title game and Oregon beat them. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, that, that was a game where if Utah won, they probably would have made the college football playoff and Oregon beat them. Uh, so you, you know, you talk about they're having to play twice this year. I just kind of feel like, gosh in this battle of brothers like is one brother really gonna like lose three times to his other brothers in a row which would be what this would have to be Mm. uh so so there's part of me that just when i when i read into the uh you know just kind of the feel of the game i just feel like the older brother at some point is gonna have to win one of these big games now he's a junior maybe it could come next year that would be great but uh anyway i think i think that's a fun angle to to be watching yeah, no, I agree. Well, um, <clears throat> you know, as we look ahead, uh, I think for the Huskies, um, you know, this next week's game against Colorado uh, feels pretty irrelevant at this point. Uh, really, the the big questions uh, beyond, uh, you know, looking ahead to 2022 over the next couple of weeks are really come down to, number one, will Sam Heward get a start and are they willing to burn his red shirt in order to get him additional experience that he needs if he's going to be the quarterback for the future. Uh, Personally, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Mark, but personally, I think when it comes to um, talented four or five star players in college football today, I think that the, the red shirt has become completely irrelevant. If you're a talented player today, you're either going to leave early and go to the NFL, or you're going to transfer to a different school to get more playing time. So I, the way I look at it is, hey, if this guy can get five games, or you know, if he if he if he can get the next two games um, of experience and potentially even a bowl game, it is well worth burning the red shirt because if he's as good as everybody hopes he's going to be we're not going to keep him for four more years anyways so let's try to make the most of the time with sam heward that we've got and you know really like 
there may not be a better recruiting tool for this Husky uh, team in terms of keeping the talent on the team that we have right now than turning to the future and letting Sam Heward you know, out of the cage and seeing what he can really do. Uh, but Mark, I'm curious what your thoughts are about that whole idea of, you know, getting getting Sam Heward out of the box and potentially burning his red shirt. It's a good question. I, on the one hand, I think I agree with you in the sense that for the truly great quarterbacks, uh, they rarely use four years of eligibility. Uh, but there are a lot of pretty good quarterbacks that do end up being, you know, four-year starters. And, uh, and I guess I, I like, we can read into the Heward name and we can read into the five-star rating and kind of assume that he's of a certain caliber that once he gets the starting job, he's going to be off to the NFL in two or three years. But I don't know that that would be just a blanket assumption. Like if you look at a list of past five-star quarterbacks nationwide, you know, half of them are guys that you would recognize as being sensational college quarterbacks. And the other half are guys that are, you know, decent to forgettable. And we don't really know where Sam Heward fits in that spectrum. I mean, I, I would presume that there's a reason why the coaching staff has not started him to this point this year. And that seems to be that he, he still has some work to do to be ready to kind of be in those, in those moments and so if that's, if that's how you're feeling about him, there is some, you know, I think some benefit to keeping that red shirt and keeping another extra year of eligibility. And then if he wins the starting job next year, you've got the potential of having a four-year starter at the quarterback position uh, as like a worst case scenario. You know, like if your best case scenario is he becomes an NFL prospect and leaves after two or three years, that's great. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if he ends up being like a, a pretty good quarterback who, who maintains that starting job for four years, that's, that's not necessarily a bad alternative. So I guess I don't see uh, a major drawback from protecting that Richard. I don't know that the reps that he would get in the final two or three games of this year are going to be that much better for his development um, than whatever he's been able to do in practice and whatever he would be doing going forward, you know, in training camps and, and everything like that. So based on, you know, what you've seen from Dylan Morris and from the Susky offense and, you know, from just the, the way that this season has gone, is there any reason to not just go all in on seeing what they can, what, what they can find out about Sam Heward these last couple games? Well, so they're four, they're four, six right now right right the huskies yeah so so if you win if you can beat colorado and the cougars you can get to a bowl game which gets right. you a few more extra weeks of practice which can be kind of helpful for working through the young guys the interesting thing is warren is i think most of these coaching staff kind of realize that they're dead man walking in their current positions right you know it's not like bob gregory is imagining that he's going to be back on the staff next year. So the person, the people making the decisions about whether to redshirt guys, whether to play younger guys or older guys are not necessarily thinking of the long-term future of the program as much as they're probably thinking what's going to help me get my next job. 
you know? And so for Bob Gregory, if he can lead the Huskies to a couple wins to end the season, that's going to look better on his resume when he's shopping it around to people in the off season. Uh, so I don't know that, that the current coaching staff is really going to be kind of making that decision based on what, what sets us up best for the long term. I think they're going to be thinking I, yeah. about how do we beat Colorado? And I mean, I, I do get that, it, but if you watch the second half or if you've been paying attention for most of this season, at some point you've got to come to the conclusion Dylan Morris is not going to get us there. We, you know, we might as well go ahead and see what we can, what we can get out of Sam Heward because Dylan Morris is, there's something broken with him right now. And uh, it's time, it's time to move on. Uh, So the other question, of course, I think, you know, if, if there are any, if there's any intrigue left in this season, it's, will this be the season that, the Cougars snap the seven game losing streak that they have in the Apple cup to the Huskies. And, um, you know, I would say that, that this is probably the best chance that they have had since Chris Peterson took over, uh, the program, uh, you know, in 2000 and, uh, what was it? 2013. So, um, you know, it, based on what you've seen now as as you've watched Oregon play against Washington State and the Huskies how do you think this Cougar team is going to stack up against the dogs well I I mean the Cougars have played better over the last month or so month and a half than than the Huskies have that's for certain I think the interesting thing is um, the Cougars don't necessarily run the ball really well they 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 will run the ball with kind of draws or or counters when they're kind of in a passing formation and a passing down and they'll you know give it to max borgie and he can rip off a nice little run but they're not they're not committed to like running the ball the way that Mm. the teams that have really been been owning the huskies recently and so they're a run and shoot team which means Jaden delora is, is going to be throwing the ball. And that is the one thing that the Huskies do really well is, is mm-hmm. defend the pass. Um, and so I, you know, the, the put it this way, the Cougars are not going to beat the Huskies throwing for less than hundred yards. <laughs> like they're, right. they're just not, they're just not equipped to do that. Yeah. And so in that sense, I think it could be a competitive game. I also, uh, I don't think the Cougars defense is, is lights out in a way that, um, that would just completely put a stranglehold on the Husky offense. Now the Husky offense kind of puts a stranglehold on itself at times. That's true. So, so maybe, maybe the Cougars wouldn't have to do that much, but I, I think it should be a competitive game. Mm. And I, I will say that, you know, kind of going back to the Heward question, I'm much more interested to see how, how Sam Heward would do, you know, against a team like the Cougars, just as like a football yeah. fan, who's just kind of curious what the Huskies have under the hood. Like I would be right. much more interested if they just said he's our starter against Colorado and against Washington state. Yeah. Um, let's, let's see what we've got. That's, that would be much more interesting to me as a football fan. I agree. Well, the big story of course, is that Jimmy Lake is no longer the head coach. He will not be coaching any more games for the Washington Huskies. And now the conversation of who will take the place of head coach Jimmy uh, head yeah head coach Jimmy Lake and you know potentially what will the 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 rest of the staff 
look like as we can only surmise that there will be a total overhaul in the coaching staff over the offseason. And so, Mark, you know, there's a lot of articles that have come out over the last few days about who the potential candidates are. So I decided to kind of, you know, spice it up a little bit. And I've come up with some different uh, awards or different categories for yes, uh, for head coach, potential head coaching replacements. So here's here's my list. Feel free to uh, comment on any any of these as we go along. So I think clearly the dream candidate, just like when when Chris Peterson came in 2013, he was the dream candidate for the Huskies at that time. The dream candidate now is Bob Stoops. And uh, there are rumors flying around that there's some interest there. I'd say that it's probably uh, a little bit of a, a pipe dream to think that that we'd be able to land Stoops, but um, certainly he's a guy that comes with the most impressive resume uh, that you could pretty much muster out on the market today. How uh, how does the the Stoops name resonate with you? It's it's an interesting candidate. I think if so if. If Stoops was interested, I would think this is the one deal that could get done pretty quickly because with coaches that are currently coaching other teams, you're probably not going to really get them to commit until their regular season is over in a few weeks. But with Stoops, he's in a television studio. So like if, if there's really like mutual interest here, I would think we would start hearing things relatively soon to confirm that uh, in a public way. Uh, I th think the upside side is obvious like he's a hall of fame coach he's won a national title his teams were nationally relevant every single year it didn't matter you know um who they were replacing or anything they were just always really good i think if i had one concern from a washington standpoint it would be he's been out of the game for a little bit and sometimes when a coach has been out for a few years they kind of lose that that killer instinct that's that's yeah. needed you know when you guys landed chris peterson he was coming straight Great from his other job yeah. um but you know when, when you've got a guy like uh you know mac brown coming out of the television studio to coach north mm. carolina that's been a little up and down like it hasn't it hasn't necessarily been you know uh smooth sailing at north carolina so uh i think overall if you could land bob stoops you've got to you've got to go for it like he that would be a home run hire and i'm sure he would hire a lot of really good people around him assuming he doesn't hire his brother mike <laughs> yeah so you know i mean bringing in a stoops you're you're talking about a monumental commitment to the football program by the athletic department it probably would take at minimum uh a little over nine million dollars to to bring in stoops in addition to you know paying out jimmy's contract and uh, all the other contracts as well as hiring a top flight uh, coaching staff around Stoops. So you're talking about uh, going to a level of commitment that no other Pac-12 team has taken up until this point. Uh, so I, that's that's the dream candidate. Here's what I'm calling the prime time candidate. And of course, who else could be the prime time candidate but prime time himself, Dion Sanders, who is actually the head coach at Jackson State um, yeah. and has drawn some positive reviews 
in his first year as a head coach and as a guy that is getting convert getting in the conversation for TCU as a replacement and now mm -hmm. there are fans that are clamoring for what could a Deion Sanders bring to the table as a head coach at the University of Washington and you know I, as I think about it you know I put it out there on on Twitter that there are two things that would have to happen for this to work number one he would have to be in a mentoring relationship with Chris Peterson Chris yeah. Peterson would have to take him under his wing and really mentor him and then number two they would have to go in big time on an offensive coordinator and a defensive coordinator with head coaching experience so that Deion Sanders could do what I think he's best primed to do, <laughs> which is to be a recruiting magnet and a motivational speaker for that team. And, you know, if those pieces were in place, I could see a scenario where a prime time could potentially be a big draw for the the you know the top flight players that we're trying to recruit to the University of Washington. I think of all of all of your candidates, this is the one who I think it's the highest floor and the or the highest ceiling and the lowest floor. Like <laughs> no doubt. I could see I could see Dion coming in. And first of all, I <laughs> As much as I know you would like it, I don't think he would like look to Chris Peterson as a mentor. I think he would do his own thing from the get go. I think right. he would rub people the wrong way at times. It would be a difference of culture in every possible way. But if it worked, if it worked, he could kind of bring back some of that old like dog brashness, you know, that that has kind of um, been missing from from UW football, you know, really going back to the Don James era was the last time it really felt like that, you know, where, where you've just got this team that is just kind of plays with with that edge. I mean, they had it for, for a while with Peterson, don't get me wrong. But um, I, like, I think it could really work just because he's shown at Jackson State that he understands something about building winning culture. He's nine and one there in his second year um, for a program that didn't really have much success. I think at the same time, like it would not surprise me at all if that just turns into a complete catastrophe, you know, and you yeah. talked about the assistance around him. Like if he doesn't have the right assistance, um, if, you know, I, I could just see it where some of the other coaches in the PAC 12 are kind of coaching circles around him a little bit. Uh, and it's a rude awakening for a guy that maybe stepped a little bit beyond, beyond what he should be trying to do. So I could see it going either way. And, and there's yeah. something tantalizing about it that I kind of hope something like this happens just because I would love to see how it worked out. Uh, but then there's also a little part of me that thinks, man, he could really, he could really get it rolling there just with his personality. No, I agree. You know, and if you turn on the television and you watch commercials, you see the Aflac commercials come on right now. And there are two guys featured in those commercials. Nick Saban and Deion <laughs> Sanders, you know, so people say, well, does, you know, does Deion Sanders still have any, you know, pull with, with the young athletes? And I I'd say, absolutely. If Herm Edwards does, then take whatever, you know, cachet Herm Edwards had and multiply it by five. Cause that's what Deion Sanders has got. I mean, he's, he is a guy that is, has all his life has oozed with charisma and, and, 
you know, kind of that flash and sex appeal. But I think he's actually matured quite a bit as a human being over the years as well. So it's an interesting, interesting question. I don't think that's going to happen, but it's a fun one to think about. My nostalgic candidate, this is a, this one that brings back a lot of warm memories for Husky fans would be uh, head coach Marcus Tuiasosopo. Of course, Marcus Tuiasosopo is often regarded as the greatest quarterback in Husky history, leading the dogs, almost putting them on his shoulders to carry them to a Rose Bowl championship under Rick Neuheisel, uh, defeating a, uh, a, a Purdue team led by, uh, by Drew, uh, oh, why am I blanking on this? Drew, Drew Brees. Yeah. Uh, Drew yeah. Brees. And, uh, you know, and a guy that, that anytime people talk about the, the, the greatest moments of Husky football, Marcus Tuiasosopo is right there in the conversation. He's currently uh, coaching at, uh, is it Rice, I believe, and um, has having mixed results there. But there's no doubt that there, there would be a homecoming feel with a guy like Marcus Tuiasosopo. And my sense is that is all the reasons why you should stay away from hiring him. Because if you look at a place like Nebraska, which which brings home a hero of their own in Scott Frost, who had a really great resume, and he has struggled mightily at Nebraska, and now they can't figure out a way to fire him. They're bringing him back for a fifth year when he's done nothing in his first four years to give them any reason to do that. And they're doing it basically because they can't like fire this hero who led them to a national title and now they're kind of they're kind of stuck with him in a way that's really tricky. Michigan's kind of in a similar boat with Jim Harbaugh. He's obviously done much better than than Scott Frost, but has really struggled in in big games, especially against Ohio State and Michigan State. But he's a he's a Michigan legend, and so how do you how do you get rid of this guy? I think if if you're a fan of Marcus Tuiasosopo, you leave that fandom in the past. You yeah. root for him to do well at Rice. You hope he lands a good job somewhere else, and and turns that into a good coaching career but it gets really complicated when you start bringing those guys home I think I, I I would stay away from that I agree I don't think he's got the coaching chops to uh to you know there's one thing about being a great player another thing to being a great strategist you know yeah. I think one day down the road Jake Browning may be a great coach because that's the kind of player that he was he was a gym rat he was a yep. guy that knew the playbook inside and out, but that was not who Marcus Tuiasosopo was. Marcus right. Tuiasosopo was a guy that, that used guts and just sheer raw talent to be able to will his team to victory game after game after game. And that doesn't always translate onto the, the, the coaching level. So the last one that I have is kind of my, 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 my coaching candidate, uh, awards is the sweet revenge can candidate. And, uh, you know, I, I thought about, we talked about this a little bit last week, but hiring Joe Moorhead, who was, who is the offensive coordinator at Oregon, uh, you know, strengthening UW and their offensive play calling, weakening Oregon and their offensive play calling. Joe Moorhead's got head coaching experience. Uh, a lot of people said that his time at um, Mississippi State was not, you know, really reflected in in the record that he was a better coach than 
what the record showed. Um, but, you know, would Joe Moorhead leave Oregon to take a position like that? And uh, would he be a fit at UW? I have no idea if he'd be interested. I think if you could gain interest from him, I think it's definitely worth exploring because he's been a really, really solid offensive coordinator for, for Oregon. And it would no doubt it would, it would hurt the ducks. They'd have to go find another offensive coordinator and it would, it would have instantly give the Washington offense some more credibility. I, but I think, I think, you're missing the real sweet revenge candidate here warren no no i'm not i'm not missing it i i know where you're going and i was although i had that in my bag of tricks (laughs) i had that in my bag of tricks so i know what you're gonna say you know what i'm gonna say that the real sweet revenge would be pulling chip kelly from ucla over to uw (laughs) and there are some rumors that that's in the conversations yeah, if you're talking about like, okay, what is what is the best case scenario for your coach? Let's say it's an undefeated season in a national championship. If you guys hire Bob Stoops and he delivers that to you, Oregon fans are going to be like, man, well, they got they got a Hall of Fame coach, like good on them. If you hire Deion Sanders, there's part of me that would just be like <laughs> thrilled at the idea of Deion doing How'd you that. How'd do that? Like, yeah. fun, you know, like, but if, man, if you, if you got Chip Kelly and he was able to somehow – transform Washington into a better program than Oregon that would be the most difficult thing for Oregon fans to swallow and it would make things really hard for Mario Cristobal because I think there's still a level where Oregon fans will never love Mario the way they they love Chip at the same time I'm not sure Chip is is that same coach anymore so I I don't know that he's capable of of winning at that level i mean it's it's been a little uneven a little rocky at ucla but but that is by far the one where if if somehow you got it to work it would be the the knife in the back to uh to duck fans how how would duck fans feel if if we could we could bring in uh chip kelly as the head coach and somehow we could you know pay enough money to have uh, Justin Wilcox as the defensive coordinator, you know, would that just be like a, a nightmare for for Oregon Duck fans? Well, it, it would be a real. It would it would it would be a good move for Washington just because for years Justin Wilcox was the one who had Chip Kelly's number. So that's you right. know that would be good to pair those guys together. But yeah, to to see a couple ducks pairing up uh, like that would would I mean it would be. The similar scenario for you, right, would be if Mario Cristobal left and took the Miami job or something and uh, and Oregon managed to get Chris Peterson to come out of retirement. Like, that yeah. would be the ultimate gut punch for Washington fans. would be like, what the heck? Like, you know, um, you were ours. So, no doubt. No yeah. doubt. Yeah. yeah. Well, those are kind of the, 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 the fantasy uh, candidates. I think the realistic candidates – some of that are being out, being mentioned out there. Tom Herman, who was at Texas and now he's a, a offensive analyst at, at, with the Chicago Bears. Kalen DeBoer is a, kind of an up-and-coming head coach at Fresno State. He's done wonders with Jay Kaner. Uh, Kalani Sataki, who has BYU firing on all cylinders right now, 19-3 and in the last two years, 4-0 and against the Pac-12 this year. And the aforementioned Justin Wilcox, who uh, really has been in a difficult situation the last couple of seasons at Cal, 
with all of their, you know, external challenges. But, um, you know, I think the most realistic head coaching hire is going to be this name. Huh? And uh, I think that's what it's going to end up being is that there's going to be some guy that's not on any of our radars that, yeah. that is not on any of these lists. And uh, all of a sudden we're going to get an announcement that some guy that, you know, meets their qualifications is going to come in and uh, they're probably going to pay him $4 million a year. And uh, we're going to be left scratching our heads going, what on earth was Jen Cohen talking about when she said that they were going to, you know, put whatever resources necessary into making this thing a huge win. But so that I'm glad you said that, Warren, though, because I do want to say this to, to Washington fans that are out there, because we, we were talking about this offline. And that is uh, when I look at like the past decade for Oregon sports, the three best hires the athletic department has made were Chip Kelly when they hired him away from the University of New Hampshire to be their offensive coordinator. Dana Altman, when they hired him away from Creighton in a basketball coaching search where they first they went after Tom Izzo and they went after Billy Donovan. And they ended up with Dana Altman, who's been fantastic. And then Mario Cristobal, who they promoted after Willie Taggart left them in a lurch. And in all three of those cases, they were kind of underwhelming hires that nobody really knew much about or didn't have a lot of confidence in or seemed like we were settling when there was somebody else better out on the market. And in all three cases, they've turned out to be really, really successful coaches. And I do think that you know there is a scenario where one of those huh candidates one of those candidates that isn't really on the radar that isn't as sexy as bob stoops or Deion sanders actually could be the right coach for the university of washington so it's it's not about winning the press conference as much as it's about winning the next four to six years of what that coach can bring and and i think sometimes those off the radar candidates uh can end up reaping some some benefits that aren't aren't initially uh, seen. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of wisdom to that, and uh, the, the challenge is that with the the Twitter sphere and the tide of public opinion being able to turn so quickly, um, whoever comes in as the next head coach has got to produce results fairly quickly in order to keep the critics at bay. You know, the, yeah. the, the great example being, um, you know, the Huskies hiring a guy from Kent State named Don James that right. nobody had heard of him when he came out here, but he had the time in that era to build yes. the program. And it wasn't really until about 17 years into his career that the Huskies truly started firing on all cylinders and unfortunately once they finally did uh you know it, it all kind of came crashing down with the billy hobert scandal which ironically would be par for the course today with the new name Im image and likeness rules uh right. but but yeah i think that's the the big question is how much how much leeway will any next head coach have in this current atmosphere of you know, Twitter, uh, Twitter critics and, and armchair quarterbacks. But let's wrap up. And Mark, we're going to bring back a couple of features from our podcast that we've kind of neglected over the last few months. 
first one being the stat of the week. And then we've got Mark's moment and uh, my parting shot. So uh, Mark, do you want to give the stat of the week? I think you may enjoy this a little bit more than I might. Yeah, sure. This is, well, it's, and it's really a non stat of the week, Warren. And that is this, this uh, came up on Twitter multiple times over the weekend, but it was, it was really fascinating. So both Washington head coach, Jimmy Lake and Washington state head coach, Nick Rolovich were fired this year in their second seasons at their respective schools. Here is the stat. Neither Jimmy Lake of Washington nor Nick Rolovich of Washington state ever coached in an apple cup. Of course, the Apple Cup last year uh, was canceled due to COVID. Neither of them stuck around in their jobs long enough this year to be able to have the chance to coach in an Apple Cup. So somehow, uh, both Jimmy Lake and Nick Rolovich end their tenures at Washington and Washington State uh, without ever having coached in an Apple Cup. That's a bizarre stat. Of course, the you know the the one asterisk is that. Jimmy Lake has coached in seven Apple Cups, but not as the head coach well, of okay, the Washington yeah. so, Huskies. So he does correct. have a seven and zero record against the Cougars, <laughs> but not as the head coach. But he either way, a bizarre, bizarre stat and a turn of events that nobody could have predicted at the beginning of 2021. Uh, all right, Mark. Uh, I've been I've been longing to get back to uh, our our Mark's moment. So share with us your Mark's moment for this week. Yeah, my moment from this week uh, comes. It actually also involves a, a former Washington head coach uh, indirectly. But uh, my moment of the week was Kansas's stunning upset of Texas. 57 to 56 in overtime. This was a wild game. Kansas ran out to a 21 point halftime lead. And then it looked like they were going to give it all away completely. Uh, Kansas, uh, the thing that I liked about them, they, they, they were going for the win the whole game. They went for it on a fourth and one at their own 30 yard line with three minutes to go. Didn't get it. That seemed to let Texas back in the game. Then the Kansas defense comes through with an interception in the end zone uh, I mean, it was just this back and forth game where Kansas was fighting the whole time. The, here's what I love though, Warren. It comes down to overtime. Texas scores first. Kansas answers with a touchdown and they decide we're Kansas. Nobody expected us to be in this game. We're going to go for two. They run a two point conversion play. The quarterback rolls out. He throws back across his body and hits a fullback, Jared Casey. Jared Casey is a walk on who hadn't played an offensive snap for Kansas all season. The only thing, the only reason he was in the game was because of an injury to another player. And on his first offensive snap of the year, he catches the game winning two point conversion to beat Texas. So Texas under former Husky coach, Steve Sarkeesian has now lost five straight games. They are in utter chaos in Austin. This game was at home that they lost to Kansas. Meanwhile, Kansas is headed in the right direction under one of those no-name coaches. They're coached by a guy named Lance Leipold, who actually is a six-time national champion at University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, which is an FCS juggernaut. So he is now getting his moment to kind of coach a, a major uh, conference program, and he's starting at the bottom, Kansas, who has been a laughingstock in college football for as long as we can remember. And uh, 
what a game take takes the win over texas in his first season a uh, great story with the walk-on fullback loved everything about this upset absolutely i mean that that's a barn burn and it you know it's an interesting dynamic because you mentioned steve sarkeesian former washington head coach but his defensive coordinator is pete kwiatkowski who was a, a former washington defensive coordinator and very much like jimmy lake considered to be one of the top defensive coordinators in the nation which is why uh steve sarkeesian and texas shelled out big bucks to bring Kwiatkowski out from UW to to Texas and for one reason or another uh it has not worked at all this season for for coach K so he may be gone sooner rather than later as well well I'm gonna I'm gonna close up with uh P-dubs parting shot and uh, as as difficult as the last season has been for Washington Husky fans I do want to say a big thank you to Jimmy Lake as the head coach, um, really, especially for his time as uh, the defensive backfield coach and as the defensive coordinator for the Huskies. He coached, uh, coached up and developed and recruited some of the, the greatest Husky defensive players uh, of all time. I mean, here's just a, a list of names of defensive stars that are playing in the NFL that that were recruited and developed by uh by Jimmy Lake, Buddha Baker, Byron Murphy, Ezekiel Turner, Marcus Peters, Keith Taylor, Shaq Thompson, um Levi Onwuzurike, Kevin King, Greg Gaines, Taylor Rapp, Corey Littleton, um Jordan Miller, Danny Shelton, Vita Vea, Joe Tryon, Elijah Molden, Sidney Jones. I mean, just some of the greatest Husky defensive players of all time have come under the, the coaching leadership of Jimmy Lake. And just in case there's anybody out there that's uh, wanting to correct me on this, I do know that Lake did not recruit every single one of those players but he was a coach for every single one of those players that are in yeah. the NFL right now. So thank you, Jimmy Lake. Thank you for uh, all that you did to help turn our program around. We wish you the best. We hope that you have a bright future with lots of success. And uh, maybe one day your, uh, your, your path will lead you back to the University of Washington. But if it doesn't, we're grateful for the time we got to have with you on our on our uh, coaching staff at, at UW. Well, well said, Warren. It'll be interesting. I mean, Jimmy Lake will land on his feet somewhere, right? He's gonna uh, he's gonna get some sort of assistant job somewhere. One would think, and um, I'm sure this is not the last we'll hear of him. I agree. Well, thank you everybody for listening to the Dog and Duck Show. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share, tell your friends and uh, leave a review. Thank you for being a part of this family with us. It is growing. Uh, it's been exciting to see uh, our listenership uh, slightly take off over the last couple months. So thank you all for listening to the Dog and Duck Show. And with that, I'll close out with Go Dogs. And Go Ducks. See you next time. <laughs>